Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of The Lunch Therapy. I'm your host, unlicensed lunch therapist, Adam Roberts. My patient today, Hedy McKinnon, is one of the most prolific food writers working in the industry. She is the author of four best-selling cookbooks, including her most recent, To Asia With Love. She also writes recipes for The New York Times, Bon Appetit, Delicious, Splendid Table, Food 52, the list goes on and on. In today's session, we learn how Hedy comes up with her recipes. And that's the, the really exciting thing about food, right? To come up with new things or just tweak things a little way that, you know, that really excites your own taste buds. And that's really what I'm doing most of the time, Adam, is I'm just trying to satisfy myself. In, I make food that I want to eat. And um, luckily, a lot of people want to eat that food too. How she tried to recreate her mom's egg custard. There was this one thing that I was just missing out that I wasn't even paying attention to was that she said, you got to do it. you got to steam it really low and slow. And how her lunch actually triggered me. Because when yeah. you said, I mean, you said lettuce on the bagel, it kind of like gave me like goosebumps a little bit because it's like never it something it? I've ever, I've never had, no, but not in a good way. Like I have to, this is my own therapy session because like, I've, <laughs> I, I, so without further ado, here is my lunch therapy session with Hedy McKinnon. Hedy, uh, welcome to Lunch Therapy. Thanks for doing the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I was, uh, first of all, I'm a fan of your work and I was Googling you before you came on. And I have to say, I think you're one of the most prolific food writers I've ever met. You have recipes <laughs> in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Bon Appetit. Um, I mean, you have recipes everywhere. How do you produce so much content over like a period of time? <laughs> well, it's funny because um, I actually, you know, I, my work, my editorial work has really picked up in the last I think only the last 12 months, to be honest. But I needed that because I always have so many recipes that I'm wanting to develop and things that I'm wanting to cook and different iterations of things. So really, like, what you you write a book, like, every – well, I write a book every two years. And so you kind of run out of room and run out of outlets to share your recipes. So really, the editorial is great because – it just allows different, you know, different forums and different audiences to experience your food. But also like every media outlet is really different. And so you kind of develop recipes that are your ideas, but kind of within what their audience would look for. So that's mm -hmm. a really interesting and challenging um, part of my work that I actually really enjoy. Yeah, I mean, I was just reading your recipe for um, it was like spaghetti with mushrooms, uh, and it was like a sort of like a stir fry, but also oh, yeah. had butter in it. I mean, all of that just that is was like in the so, New York Times. Yeah, it was in the New York Times, and it just sounds so delicious. And it's one of those recipes where it's like, oh, like why didn't I think of that? But it also feels personal. So I feel like you have this great approach to cooking where it's like unique enough to feel special, but approachable enough that people can actually do it, which is yeah, ideal, I, mean, I think. I Absolutely. I mean, I'm always trying to, um, you know, I did grow up with a very kind of rich um, food, you know, culture um, at home. So it's always like that particular recipe you talk about. It's when I first, um, when people first started cooking, they were like, oh, but you're using like pasta, like Italian mm -hmm. pasta in a stir fry. And what I was trying to do with that dish is really like expand people's um, understanding and the way they think about a stir fry, because mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of people, when they cook a stir fry, they just go, I'm going to eat it with rice because it's 
an Asian dish, whereas I'm I'm trying to like get people to because stir frying is such an easy, economical way to cook during the week, right? You just mm-hmm. look at what you've got in your fridge, you get stuff out, you stir fry it at high heat, and then that can become a sauce or a seasoning for so many different things, more than just rice and noodles. Like, and so mm-hmm. I kind of you know took that out of the box and went with a an Italian product because you know obviously I'm from Australia and. Uh, in Australia, a noodle and Italian pasta is very different. Mm, so it's a real bone of contention when people, when I hear people talking about noodles in the US, because I'm not quite sure what they're talking about sometimes, mm-hmm. because we there's a real demarcation in, in Australia, like noodles is Asian mm-hmm. and pasta is um, Italian. That's like I, Italian I once uh, was cooking with an Italian chef, Michael White in New York. He has a bunch of restaurants, like of course Maria, I think is one of them. And I called mm-hmm. his pasta noodles, and he he got he's like they're not noodles, it's pasta. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry, but it's so funny how how <laughs> how finicky people could be. And I'm sure it's the other way around too. That if you were to call noodles pasta, some people might be offended, also. So oh, you yeah, know. oh, two different things. Yeah. <laughs> so, so do you, do you worry about that kind of stuff? I mean, when you, when you write recipes, are you, are you careful not to go too far beyond like what's culturally the norm or do you, do you just throw all those expectations out the window? You know, it, it's, it's kind of ebbs and flows through my, throughout my career, I guess. Um, it's, so. Uh, I'm always because I'm because I'm vegetarian. There's always like that other element to the things that I do. So, a lot of the recipes that I come up with are not traditional because the traditional recipe had meat in it. Mm-hmm. So I'm always trying to adapt things to my diet and my lifestyle. Um, and I think you know the in terms of like veering too far away from the original, I veer a long way from the things that I grew up with for example. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, but I'm always respectful to the origins. And that's where you, that's the balancing act, you know, in writing a recipe that is still evolving food and still making, bringing new ideas to food. Because Mm -hmm. I think, you know, that question that of authenticity has become very popular the last, in the last 12 months. I mean, I think authenticity is such a, you know, it's almost this, uh, you know, anachronistic term to describe mm-hmm. food because it really you know some people talk about it and they don't really understand what it is and then the recipe developers like us like we just want to bring you know at the very base of what we do we want to bring delicious recipes that you know open people's minds and in my case I want to open people's minds to the world and to the way other people live and sometimes you know I can adapt a recipe like sometimes, like so. For example, in to, to Asia with Love, there's a katra pepe type dish mm-hmm. that I've put with udon noodles and there's a bit of miso in there. So it's got a little bit of an Asian spin. That sounds so um, delicious to me. I want to eat that right now for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> it's so freaking delicious, but it's it's kind of like bringing the world together on a plate. Mm-hmm. And as long as you do that with respect and with like not just taking katra pepe and in pretending that I invented it but I'm taking something that I've acknowledged is from you know a culture and I'm kind of adding myself to it it's you know I think that's a really exciting part of food and Mm -hmm. 
Otherwise, I wouldn't be eating anything because, you know, because <laughs> so many like <laughs> traditional flavors and dishes are vegetarian, uh, not vegetarian. So it's something that I've definitely had to do in the last kind of, I don't know, I've been a vegetarian for like 30 something years, not 30 something years, 20 something years. And so it's a long time of like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I don't want to give anything up when I became vegetarian as a teenager. So it's like, if I want to eat that food, I've got to create that recipe. And, and well, it's that- interesting. Yeah. It makes me think of translation, like the idea of like translating, um, you know, uh, a, a meat dish into like a vegetarian mm-hmm. dish, but then translating like a, um, a, you know, a Chinese dish into an Italian meal. There's like a lot of um, like cross-cultural currents flowing through your food, yeah. but I think that's what makes it so fascinating and also so delicious. I mean, that idea of miso with cacio e pepe is like that umami, like flavor yes. with the cheese it's just so brilliant so i'm just going to praise sounds- you. i'm just going to keep praising you all day and then people are going to change the it, channel <laughs> it does sound over the top like it does sound like that is too much flavor but um you know if you use those flavors correctly um mm-hmm. you know they're all just they're building and you know i think a lot of this kind of chasing umami chasing flavor is because I'm vegetarian and you know you do have to think about food in a different way I always like you know when you read a vegetarian cookbook written by a Mm non-vegetarian I believe that that non-vegetarians develop very different styles of vegetarian food to the way vegetarian cooks yeah well that makes Um, me think of that review that just came out of 11 madison park in the new york times oh yes yes did you read that where like the 350 dollar vegan menu by a chef who's not a vegan so yeah totally that makes a lot i mean i i really i mean i don't know why you think about vegetables are so different to meat i mean the inherent value of what you're paying for is experience the um the knowledge the techniques that they're bringing and those techniques and knowledge can be applied to either meat or vegetables. Um, to me, you're not paying for surely the produce. The produce is not going to cost that much money. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it was a really strange way of looking at vegetables and plant-based food. I thought it was um, actually not very productive at all. As a, as a review, it showed a real lack of understanding mm. of plant-based food and what maybe the chef was trying to ch- trying to achieve I mean I've never eaten at 11 Madison Park <laughs> right. um, but I do applaud you know like trying to move food forward in a way that is positive for the world and the environment um, mm-hmm. and I think that's pretty undeniable really I mean you I'm not I, I'm not one of those vegetarians that expects everyone to suddenly become vegetarian um, it's a personal choice and it's not suited to everybody but mm-hmm. for those people who can live with that diet which I have for a very long time then why not it can be a very rewarding way to eat and um I never feel like I miss out on anything so that's an interesting take too yeah and I think it it's a different way of like thinking about that $350. If, if people don't know what we're talking about, 11 Madison Park, this restaurant in New York, which was the number one restaurant in the world for a while, uh, released a $350 a person uh, vegan tasting menu, which caused a lot of controversy. And then the New York Times basically gave it zero stars, I think. Or he didn't give it stars, but he just <laughs> tore it yeah. a new one. Um, so that's an interesting take on it. But before we get to down this rabbit hole, I think we need to steer the conversation to the subject at hand, which is the title <laughs> of this podcast, which is, Hetty, what did you have for lunch today? 
<laughs> well, that's funny you should ask because, um, you know, Adam did send me a reminder to eat lunch because I sometimes <laughs> eat at the weirdest times of the day. And actually during COVID, I was on much of a, you know, a, a better schedule because I had my kids were at home, you know, mm-hmm. from school and we ate lunch together every day. Um, but since they've gone back, I'm again on my good schedule. But today mm-hmm. I actually ate a bagel, but it was a homemade bagel. It's not something wow. I do all the time. It's only the second time in my life I've made homemade bagels. But um, I was testing a recipe for this project that I can't really talk about. It's just for it's someone else's recipe. Um, but I actually made homemade bagels. It was very easy. I made the starter last night. Mm-hmm. which is just not from not a sourdough starter it was just uh, a starter that made from flour and water and this morning I got up and I actually couldn't believe that at 12 45 I was eating a homemade bagel so I am so really, jealous of that really this good. is the hardest podcast I've ever done <laughs> everything you're talking about is making me hungry so you made the homemade bagels did they have um like seeds on them or like everything bagel kind of stuff or like onion bagel or poppy bagel I have my jar of Trader Joe's everything every day of everything called everything seasoning everything bagel seasoning and I've had that jar for like maybe four years oh no (laughs) and the first time I made bagels I used half the jar and today I used the other half so they did have the everything seeds on the top Mm -hmm. and then when I ran out I used sesame seeds because I love sesame seeds and so what did you put on your bagel so the I made um, the recipe had like an egg and cheese inside, but I actually put um, cream cheese. Mm-hmm. It was actually a vegan cream cheese. I'm kind of like going a little bit um, non-cheese just for a few weeks. Just I don't know, just trying it out. Um, mm-hmm. And because I, I do, I'm vegetarian, but I do eat eggs and cheese and you know all the dairy stuff. Um, but I just thought I would cut out some of it from my diet. So I put on a um, that tofuti cream cheese. Tofuti, okay. Tofuti. <laughs> yeah. And then it was really delicious. And then I put avocado, tomato, lettuce, and salt and pepper. And it was. Now, I have so to good. say, um, I am a lunch therapist, but I mm-hmm. also grew up Jewish in New York and then Florida, and I was surrounded by bagel cultures in both places where like my grandmother and my mother and like we would go out for bagels all the time so I'm particularly like moved by your lunch because I feel like you're speaking my language now (laughs) it's just the language of bagels which is um funny because it's also making me think of like uh Annie Hall or do you ever see the movie Annie Hall Mm -hmm. or where she goes to the um deli and she orders like pastrami with mayonnaise <laughs> because when yeah. you said I mean you said lettuce on the bagel it kind of like gave me like goosebumps a little bit because it's like never it something did? I've ever I've never had no but not in a good way like I have to this is my own therapy session because like I've, <laughs> I've, I've, I've never had lettuce on a bagel in my life I've also never had avocado on a bagel I've only ever had bagel cream cheese like smoked salmon or lox raw red uh-huh. onion because that's what my grandmother always had and she had terrible oh, breath yes. so she was always yes. like saying <laughs> people tell, told her she had bad breath and then um sometimes a tomato sometimes capers and then the alternative to that was white fish salad which i don't know if you've uh, ever had but like my you husband know yeah. yeah so anyway i got triggered by your um response but <laughs> i think i need to oh, really like wow. i need to process your lunch now in, in an objective way it's not a criticism by any means it's just like, i'm trying <laughs> i'm trying to get on board the heady 
McKinnon bagel well, train. <laughs> you know, the thing is, the one thing that I've, we've, and our family, we actually talk about it all the time. How much New Yorkers love bagels? And mm-hmm. like, when you, before we moved to New York, anyone that doesn't live in New York, you think it's just a thing you see in the movies. <laughs> you know, like in the movies, they're always showing people in New York eating bagels. But people in New York really love their bagels. So I think it's really cool that you have all these memories and rituals and mm-hmm. traditions, you know, like that, um, uh, that you associate with bagels. But we, of course, do not have any. So for me, like, I can't think of a bagel just as like a sandwich. Wait, yeah, this is sorry, coming full circle. Offensive. Yeah, this is actually coming full circle. This is what we were talking about at the beginning was, do you ever go too far away? And then, then you suddenly like went too far for me. Wow, this is a really already yeah. like a, a so riveting session. Like, <laughs> yeah, I feel like I've offended you, but no, 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 not at all. You haven't offended me. By the way, like I've, I live with a husband who is didn't grow up Jewish at all. He's not Jewish. And so he's put plenty of things on bagels that I, I'm just very critical of what people put on bagels. It's not that you did anything wrong. Don't, don't take this the wrong way. I'm just very like, I don't know. I think I'm, I'm like, I'm not a conservative in any way in any area in my life, but I think I am conservative about what people put on bagels. Yeah. I'll tell you what my husband does, and this is going to shock you. He will often buy a bagel and he'll just ask for butter on the bagel and then he brings it home and he puts Vegemite on it. Oh, now that's very Australian. See, that's, that kind of blows my mind, like in a way that like, I'm not even sure what that means because I've never had Vegemite. So I just have to accept that as a thing. Um, but let's let's turn the conversation back to you though, because this isn't about my therapy. This is your lunch therapy. So what I, what I get, what I get right away from your lunch is that there's this enthusiasm and excitement for new culinary, um, adventures and like there was a real like excitement in your voice and be like I made bagels for the second time like and so do you get giddy and excited every time you cook something or try something and has that always been true for Uh, you I really do I mean I was so like enamored with these bagels this morning but you know I um often when I'm testing recipes and it comes out you know perfect and just I mean, nobody's listening to me in this house, of course, because <laughs> I will go on about food for you know, a really long time. But yeah, I mean, it's just so thrilling to, and that's the, the really exciting thing about food, right? To come up with new things or just tweak things a little way that, you know, that really excites your own taste buds. And that's really what I'm doing most of the time, Adam, is mm-hmm. I'm just trying to satisfy myself in, mm-hmm. I make food that I want to eat. And um luckily a lot of people want to eat that food too so I think like as a recipe developer and it kind of you know kind of bleeds into writing too I mean when you develop a recipe or when you write about food um you know you're writing about from from the heart and that's something that's really that you really think and you really believe in and you you know from a very personal point of view that's when you kind of touch people the most Mm-hmm. I think I think people can kind of taste that in the food. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I do have a real kind of enthusiasm, and it's 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 about flavor, really. It's about like what flavor means, what flavor, the memories that it conjures, and mm-hmm. um, the feeling that you get from from flavors is something that like I'm constantly exploring in my work. Well, what's interesting is like there is this sense of newness to what you're doing. Like it feels new. It doesn't feel like you're just recreating things that have already existed. 
but in a, in a weird way, they yeah. also feel like they've always existed. So, you know, that's something that I have anxiety about because I just wrote a cookbook that's a Broadway themed cookbook. So that's coming out next fall. Um, and then uh, I'm working on a new project, but my biggest insecurity and my biggest fear is like, am I making something that is already out there? Like, am I, am I innovating in a new way or am I coming? And, and ha- is, are those questions that you ask yourself when you come up with a recipe or do you not worry too yeah. much about that? There is no new food, though, Adam. Everything's right. been done before. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really believe that there is anything new out there. So as writers, as recipe developers, the only thing new that we're bringing is our own unique perspective. And that's mm-hmm. what I really believe. I mean, there are things that, you know, there's probably a few recipes that I've got. I invented that because I remember inventing that in the kitchen. And, like, mm-hmm. that was just from I had three things in my fridge and I wanted to create something from with that and um but honestly I think there's a lot of collective consciousness and a lot of people think the same way a lot of people have the same things in their pantry and look we're like into it's 2021 I think I feel like everything's been done before in some way Mm -hmm. before recipes were documented like so what we can bring to it is really kind of the way we think about food and the way we think about the world and and life and that's to me what makes food really interesting. I um, love that. That actually makes me feel a lot better. Now I feel like I can I can go forward and work on this new cookbook. Yes, so thank you. you can. <laughs> this is see this. Is, I don't know how this session turned into my therapy session, but it's this sort is of your the, therapy. I know the tables have turned. <laughs> but I wanted to say to you. So I was reading the introduction to to Asia with love, and it's a lovely introduction. And I loved the imagery of your mother. Um, like the one the image that's popping into my head was like the clothesline with um dried oh, pork and fish drying on it next to the clothes. But it really seems like you grew up in a very very rich food culture and I was wondering mm-hmm. if you could talk a little bit about that and how that impacted you and put you on your path to becoming a food writer yeah I mean honestly like I didn't really the two things like that childhood in that home and me doing what I do now didn't really match up until you know like a decade ago like I um you know I was lucky enough to have a mother who was my, my, my parents came to Australia from um Kongdong province in China, like south of China. And so my mum really, she just cooked all the time. Like she was always doing something to do with food, like whether it was preparing, like pickling ginger or pickling or, you know, salting eggs or, you know, like as, as, you know, that image that you were just mentioning, like hanging, you know, fish or pork um, on the clothesline outside on the patio. And she was always doing something to do with food. Um, you know, I have this really vivid memory of her like crouched on the floor on a very low plastic um, stool with a big stainless steel um, bowl in front of her and she's slapping fish cakes. And she's mm. just doing that repeatedly and repeatedly in the sound, like as I talk about it, I can hear the sound, the slapping sound. And that was to create these um, perfectly elastic but firm fish cakes, which she would tell you she was known for because my mom Mm -hmm. says that she's known for a lot of things but you know they said so this was like the the house that I grew up with and you know at the same time my dad worked at the market and there was just like produce all over the house like we had to step over produce to get to the bathroom and Mm -hmm. things like that so like that was the house I grew up in and it, it wasn't anything extraordinary to me it was just a normal house but as I got gotten older um, and as I had kids of my own and, you know, went on this um, journey of cooking, you know, all that 
that history um, and and the life that my mum created for us, that I took it took on new. I had new appreciation. You know, I I finally really understood what all that cooking was about, Mm -hmm. and that was really about her keeping her culture alive. You know, she Mm -hmm. was in a Western country. Um, her family had also come to Australia too. So, but, you know, she was known as the cook of the family and she was like really keeping traditions alive. Like it was this tether to um, a homeland which she left in circumstances that I don't really fully understand. But, you know, she, immigrants often don't want to talk about um, the circumstances in which they had to leave their homeland. So it's, you know, the cooking was, you know, it filled a void in her life, I think, mm-hmm. um, and in, you know, and at the same time created this really beautiful um, home life for us. So I felt really lucky. And then, you know, I didn't really go into food straight away. I went, I was doing other things. I went to university. I, I was working in PR for many years. And it wasn't until I actually had my own kids that I really got into cooking. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't cooking Asian food. Like I was cooking like I had a salad business in Sydney that I started um, about 10 years ago, actually. Mm-hmm. And I was delivering like salads around my neighborhood, um, veg- vegetable-based salads. And uh, I was cooking like Middle Eastern food and Mediterranean food. And it was really uh, like, to be honest, I was really learning to cook as I mm-hmm. was running this business. And I had these beautiful customers that, you know, really became my friends that, we're just along for the journey. It was just like this magical time before social media, before any of these things. And it <laughs> God, was just I like wish we could this... go back to them. That sounds I wonderful. know, it was incredible. <laughs> like people yeah. think, oh, did you have Instagram? Like there was no Instagram when I started this business, you know, or maybe it was there, but I didn't have it. And, um, you know, as I started to cook and, you know, write about food and, and really like the real impetus in really going back to the food of my culture was really moving to New York in 2015 and really being very far away. I felt very far away from my culture. Like I felt very far away from my mom, obviously, geographically I was. And so I just felt like I needed something to bring me back mm-hmm. to um, my Asian roots, my upbringing, the traditions that I grew up with and I actually found that in food and it was like the easiest way of me keeping all of that alive um it was very necessary for me actually now this becomes my therapy session yes Adam um but yeah I mean it really food really kind of um brought me back home and Mm -hmm. I became just really just so um cognizant of how lucky I was to have grown up in that culture. And um, I became, you know, just really interested in, you know, exploring those flavors mm-hmm. for one. Um, and a lot of what I do, like in, particularly in To Asia With Love, there are a few tra- very traditional recipes in there that my mom taught me, but I've had to kind of uh, adapt them because, you know, she grew up in an oral, you know, she, she grew up with oral recipes, like nothing was written down. And she learned by observation, that's how she learned to cook, by observation. Never, she never helped in the kitchen. Like she lived with her extended family and she just watched what people were doing and that's how she learned to cook. And um, so when I asked her, like she had no recipe. So like a lot of the things I had to kind of, you know, do, it was a lot of trial and error. A lot of like, she would say, you know, 
it's it's a cliche, but you know, the Asian mum thing is like there's a pinch of that, you know, right. when yeah. it looks like this, it's ready. So that doesn't fly in a cookbook, right? So you've got to kind of come up with a way of adding, you know, adapting a formula to something that for so long hasn't had a formula that is just um, created at, from feel and from look. And yes. um, it's, yeah, it's a really interesting kind of place to be to, to be doing that. Um, but yeah, the, a lot of the recipes in, in To Asia Love have become really important for people. It's like, it's not really, um, I don't see To Asia With Love as, as any kind of record for any one type of cuisine mm -hmm. in that it is really just um, my collection of recipes of things that mean something to me, the way that I wanted to represent um, a wider culture, not just Chinese culture, but a wider culture, the wider culture in, in which I grew up. So, um, and, you know, a lot of, I've just had like such interesting feedback from people, like different mm -hmm. people around the world, not only Chinese people, not even, not even only Asian people, but just a lot of people just really, um, they just, the stories really resonate with them. You know, the, the stories about displacement and identity and understanding identity and understanding the importance of food in, you know, staying connected to something some one, some country, some memory, yeah. you know, like it makes me think a lot so about, many different yeah. it makes me think a lot about the idea of home, um, because mm -hmm. when you were describing the home that you grew up in and the produce everywhere and the, and the um, fish on the line, you know, that, that, that there's something mm -hmm. about this like ideal, idyllic memory. I mean, the way that we all look back on our childhoods, like I remember my childhood home in Oceanside, New York, like a magical wonderland. And just mm -hmm. like, I think, oh, what a beautiful house that was. And then I went on Google Maps and I looked at it and I was like, oh, <laughs> that doesn't, that's not what I remembered. You know, it's like, we all, I think have these images in our head and we're always trying to recreate that. I mean, when you talked about how later you were trying to recreate your mother's recipes, it's almost like trying to go home again in a way or returning Absolutely. to that feeling. But at the same time, it's like, you could never quite get there. So it's, it's, it's almost like the carrot that's in front of the donkey. That's like moving the donkey forward. It's like, you're just yeah. trying to, to recreate those feelings and those sensations. But, um, but I think that's, but also the other part of it is that you're creating your own home for your own children and you're creating yeah. memories for them. So I think there's something just beautiful about that idea of like, trying to return to your childhood home, but creating a new home. And, you know, I don't know, just thinking yeah. all that stuff as, while, while you no, were talking. No, I agree. I agree with all of that. I mean, memory also is very subjective and memory changes over time. And so memories are not fact, you know, mm -hmm. like memories are just uh, uh, laced with all the things that you've experienced. And sometimes your memories will change, like according to how you're feeling that day. You know, mm -hmm. if you're feeling particularly emotional about something, you can further romanticize a memory so you know I think that all this stuff is is really important to understand like particularly for me like when I'm right because because I write about so many things that are very personal to me that I actually am working on something right now and which I can't really talk about but it's it's a new book but it's um a very it's very much about my memory of um my father and so the my father passed away when I was a teenager that's kind of the, the background to that story but um 
it, you know, it's something I've been thinking about because it's my memory. It's not my sister's memory or my brother's memory or even mm -hmm. my mum's memory. So um, it, that's a really interesting thing for me to, to think about too when I'm working because it's, it's so singular, mm -hmm. right? And my experience as the third child of this family is very different to um, the things that my sister experienced. And actually, I, I, we spoke about it on the phone really recently and she had memories of things which I'd never, that just are not in my memory bank at all, like mm. completely different. Like she remembers a different car. Like I have this one car that I, um, it's an orange Ford Falcon and that's the only car that I ever knew our family had. So mm -hmm. that's like the iconic memory for me of my father driving this car. And she talks about a completely different car mm. because it was, uh, you know, the car that maybe was around before I was born because she's actually seven years older than me. So the memories are, you know, kind of quite far apart. So that's a really interesting thing is in not only food, that doesn't really relate to food, but it relates to more of the writing of the stories. Right. I get um, it though. That, I mean, you're a cookbook author though, who's tapping into your memories to to come up with these dishes. So I think that they're, it's quite relevant, you know, how yeah. this all, everything colors that. I'm curious, is there a specific dish that you made when, once you started cooking Asian food? Um, mm. Was there something that you were longing for, like a flavor or like something specific from your childhood that was a dish that spoke to that immediately? Yeah, I mean, the dish that I always wanted was um, a dish called soy dan, which um, translates to water egg. And it's it's in the it's into Asia with love actually. It's called the steam water egg custard or or something, and or something I say or something because <laughs> I, I in my mind I think of it as soy dan, um, and it is a wobbly, steamed, savory egg custard, mm -hmm. but it's a very particular texture, and um, I tried to make this dish over really the last six years that I've lived in the US. I've tried to make this dish so many times and I've written about it, written about it when it was a failure um, because when I steamed it, it was very, um, it looked pockmarked, you know, it looked pockmarked instead of like a, a baby's bottom, you know, it should be very <laughs> smooth and, and, you know, just set and just, um, and the texture of it is, is smooth. It's like silky. And I just couldn't get it. And it's like got three ingredients, water, egg, and salt. And I, was like, I could not understand why I could not do this dish. And it was like my cursed dish. Um, and then as when I was trying to develop it again for To Asia With Love, I think I spoke to my mom about it again. And she, and, and she, you know, she repeated what the instructions and there was this one thing that I was just missing out that I wasn't even paying attention to was that she said you got to do it you got to steam it really low and slow you know like man for like slow heat slow heat and she said that over and over but for some reason I was like kind of perhaps um you know in in my recipe with my recipe writing hat on I was all, all I was focused on was um the you know the ingredients and you know mm -hmm. that that type of stuff rather than that that crucial technique so after I did that, you know, there is this one dish that that steamed, that so done is cooked in. There's one dish. It's called, she calls it the fish dish. I have the fish dish with, with me in New York. And so her description was put two eggs in, put enough cool, cooled boiled water. That's what you cool, have to Cooled use. boiled water? Cooled boiled water. So like boiled water that's been cooled. 
Um, (laughs) And then, you know, fill it up, fill the plate up till it's like, you know, this much. And I'm like, at the moment, I'm just showing Adam, I'm I'm using, like, I'm pointing to the first ridge on my my forefinger. Thank you for verbalizing that. I I forgot that this is not a visual (laughs) medium. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, yeah, fill it up to, you know, the water touches, you know, is that far from the, the rim of the bowl. So there was all these descriptions and I was like, oh my God, how am I going to turn this really base? It's such a basic dish into something. So I actually had to measure the water and, and once I, I cracked it, once I actually tried this low and slow method, um, it, it just, it, it worked and it kind of blew my mind. And, you know, this dish I mean, at the moment, it, it's very popular on in, on the internet, which kind of makes me, um, or I'm not on the internet, I'm so old, on Instagram, yes. because um, there's a microwave version of it. Yes. I, to me, yeah. is like, I won't, I mean, I will say it, it's kind of like, not okay in my book, but. Oh, well, it's so funny because I just bought a microwave for the first time in 20 years. I have a microwave literally on its way today to my apartment. And it's a very controversial thing because I proudly did not own a microwave. And then oh. Craig, Craig, my partner, eats cold leftovers. And he's always a little sad that I don't heat them up for him because I don't feel like getting the oven on. Oh, so look, like, I love the microwave. I've got no issues with the microwave. Right, but, but for, for this, this dish, dish yeah. It has like so much meaning to me. And the texture yes. of it is so important. and um, the microwave just—I don't think it gives you the right. I mean, from what I've seen, it doesn't give you the right. Is it? Texture. Is it similar to? Is it called Chaiwan Mushi, the yes, Japanese it dish? Yes, it is. Yeah. It is. It's very Same. similar. Yeah. So I, I can never say Chaiwan Mushi. So I'm happy that you said it. To um, I don't think I said it the right way. So don't. Quote oh my me god. On. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was I hoping can, you knew how to say it. No, uh, I don't know I, how to I say can, it. I can, I'm really bad with um, Japanese words, but yes, okay. it is very similar to that dish. Um, and there's a Korean dish uh, also that I've right. had um, for you know during the banchan with the banchan that's very similar. The Korean one is more like a souffle, from what I understand. It's very mm-hmm. puffy. Um, but the the Chinese version, or perhaps I should say my mother's version. I won't even say it's the Chinese version, but my mother's version is just smooth as silk, and it's all about the correct well, wobble. And there's no curdling whatsoever mm. in in there at all. So, uh, but you know that's just my. No, I love it. It's like me and the bagels. It's love. like yes. again, full circle, full circle. This is the this is the theme of our conversation today. So, actually, one thing I wanted to ask you is, um, so we talked about your Asian heritage or your mom, your mom's, I guess, both your parents' uh, Chinese background. But I'm curious, like, did um, Australia have an imprint on you, culinarily speaking? Like, and and what was that? I mean, hugely, obviously. I mean, um, and it's probably something that I didn't even really think about actually also until I moved to New York. I've had a lot of epiphanies about myself since I moved. Yeah. Um, and I think that's quite normal. I mean, I think you don't really think about identity much and influence much when you live in the country that you grew up in. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that that Australian sensibility runs through all my book and someone a friend of mine actually commented to me she's Australian but she actually said to me you know your to Asia with love just could be classed as an Australian book um and that's the way that she saw because she saw that you know food in Australia is very influenced by the world 
Um, it's incredible, by the way. The food is just. Um, I went there food. once for um, a food blogger yeah. conference to Perth, Australia. Oh yeah, yes. And then I and then I flew myself to Sydney for a couple of days, and I loved it. But actually, I never I never asked you where in Australia you were from. I'm from Sydney. Oh, you're from Sydney. I have to say my first day in Sydney was like a rainy day and it was okay. And I walked around. I was like, okay, this is nice. The next day was sunny. And that was the day that I took the ferry to the zoo past the opera house under the bridge. And it was truly one of the most stunning things I've ever seen in my life. It was just gorgeous and then it's insane right yeah it was it was unbelievable and then that opened up Sydney to me I was like oh I get it like this is a beautiful I don't know I don't know that first day was like I was travel weary I I was still like getting my footing but not but I loved that and and I had some amazing food there yeah the food is just so fresh and so um it just brings I mean if you want to represent a, a cuisine that represents um how to bring different flavors and cultures together on a plate I think go to Australia because it just is naturally the way it's always been done without pretension and without Mm -hmm. kind of um, saying I'm stealing from a culture or I'm appropriating culture. It's just the way Australia cooks because we're a young immigrant nation Mm -hmm. um, with a lot of influence from, you know, we're very close to Asia. So there's a huge Asian influence in the food there, but also huge you know, Maltese community, huge Greek community, huge Italian, you know, like Sudanese, like there's a lot of um, this immigrant culture is very young and it influences, it influences food um, in such a really powerful way. And, you know, so I think that spirit and that sensibility definitely comes out in the way I cook. And it could have been maybe a bit shocking to people to start with, but, you know, I, the way I cook is really like taking in, like the way I think about Chuesh with love is, is really like when I go to a food court in Sydney mm-hmm. and it's in Chinatown, it's not just Chinese food. It's Vietnamese food, it's Thai food, it's Korean food, it's Japanese food. And all these things kind of come under this kind of umbrella of, of Asian food. And that's kind of the way I think about um Asian flavors and and I guess yeah definitely Australia is always this you know underlying um, influence in the way mm-hmm. I cook and the way I think. It's like a sensibility. And it's almost like it's it like is. the way you think about food rather than like like a specific a flavor. D- dish yeah. or flavor. Yeah. yeah, I mean the only thing I ate in Australia that I'd never had before was um, lamingtons. Oh like, yeah, <laughs> it's like a cake. It's like chocolate yes. and coconut. It was so it good. Is- sponge cake and it's yes. got, did you have the one with the jam in the middle i think so yeah it yes. was so it's got truly a layer delicious of jam yeah. and then like this uh, chocolate icing and then coke and then what we call desiccated coconut but you call mm-hmm. shredded coconut on the outside is very good actually i had some other unique food there i, I ate at kylie kwong's rest, restaurant oh yes she's amazing she was amazing and i remember that she served insects i think that was like at, at the yes. time that was yes. which i don't know if she's still doing that but it was like every dish ha- was like seasoned with like ants and grasshoppers and things was like that, that at um at billy kwong's yeah it was yes yeah, so she's at a new restaurant now called, I think it's called Lucky Kwong. She's just, it's just open like maybe a couple of months ago. But yeah, that's something that Kylie, I mean, Kylie's amazing in terms of, you know, growing up, we didn't really see a lot of Asian, like Chinese, Asian, Australian chefs 
um, representing our food and really, I didn't think about it at the time, um, but she was really one of the only Asian faces we saw who was doing not just Asian food, but as you said, you know, she does amazing work with the Indigenous community in, in Australia. She always is championing, you know, Indigenous um, ingredients and using them in really interesting ways. Um, yes. So, yeah, she's, she's great. And I'm glad that you ate there. <laughs> I, I'm so glad I ate there. too. It was really memorable. So I was curious. So what brought you to New York and what, what's that transition been like for you? Uh, well, I mean, in terms of our moving here, it's a really boring story because um, my, my husband is a lawyer and he was offered um, a transfer. But okay. the interesting part of, you know, me and me and my husband in New York is that we first, we could have moved here um, in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. Actually, we always wanted to live in New York. We had this real love. We traveled here a few times and we decided we wanted to live, move to New York, but it's Back then, it was really hard for Australians to move to America. Um, so we went in the lottery, the green card lottery. And then at the same time, we decided, oh, let's go. We didn't think we'd get the lottery. So we moved to actually moved to the UK. We moved to London. And so in our first two weeks there, we got a, I got a call from my brother in Sydney and saying we had mail from Kentucky. Um, <laughs> and... It was the green card lottery and my husband had got the green card wow. um, in the lottery, which was actually unheard of. And we actually didn't use it because we just arrived in London. And, you know, it's we I mean, back then I was quite traumatized by that move. It was really hard. First time away from Australia and my family. And it was a tough move. So we decided just to stay in London and not just kind of keep moving around. Did you have children um, at that point or is that before you had children? No, before we had kids. And then um, my oldest was born in London. And then after she was born, I could not get out of there fast enough. I really felt this almost like magnetic pull to go back to Sydney when really I just wanted to be close to my mum. So we went back to Sydney mm -hmm. um, for about eight or nine years and then had two more kids. There. So I had three children. Um, and then yeah, this offer came up and we never thought we would do this with kids. Like it's a kind of a crazy thing to do. I had it this is, yeah. Arthur Street Kitchen, um, which was in its fourth year in Sydney. Um, Community, my first book, had just come out like nationally after the whole self-publishing thing. It, and it was only really six months after it came out that my husband and I, my husband got the offer and we thought, let's just do it. It's now or never. It's one of those things. Right. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So we moved to New York with three children in the cold, one of the coldest winters that on record. over What here. year was and that? When was it? It was beginning. It was January 2015. It was ah, in okay. So not yeah, too long know. ago, six years not ago. Not too long ago. Six years ago. And um, yeah, I mean, the transitions being, it was really kind of hard in the beginning. Like it's, it was good having the kids because they, they establish instant structure. You know, they have to go to school. They have to mm -hmm. do all the normal kid things. And for me in that winter, I had already been offered the second book with my publisher in Australia. So I basically like sat down and wrote Neighbourhood in mm -hmm. that crazy cold winter um, and tested recipes and was writing. And that book was really about moving around the world and, you know, kind of how you cook and surrender to your surroundings. Mm. Um, yeah, so that that's kind of 
but I did, but it's taken a long time. I well, it sort of begs personally. the question, like how did New York affect your cooking to that point of like community being like your surroundings? So, I mean, you, you made yeah. bagels today, so I feel like that's, a, that's, very, <laughs> that's very New York-y, like, but are there other, are there other ways that New York has impacted you? Definitely. I mean, how can it not? How can anywhere you live not impact what you do, how you think, the way you see the world? It's like, mm-hmm. it's inevitable. Um, and that's, I guess, one of the things I really love about living somewhere different um, is the way I, I look at the world differently and I challenge myself um, to constantly, you know, think about things differently. I think that's really important. Um, and yeah, so New York has become like this really important, like not even like just in cooking, but just creative ways. I, I like, I often say this and people might not understand what I mean, but I say, I like the person I am when I'm in New York. Mm-hmm. and you know like you've lived in New York obviously yes. it's not an easy place to live it's you know it's fast-paced it's, it's never stopped it's competitive uh, from every level you know from kids going to school like getting into the right school like right. right public school and all that stuff and it's a really tough city to live but it's that toughness that um you know, toughens you up as a person. And mm-hmm. um, it's, it really inspires me to keep creating and to keep coming up and exploring um, not only myself, but the world and other people's lives and the way that intersects with my own life and all of that. So it really does. I mean, it's something I do think about a lot because when you live away from the country or the city, the family you grew up with, it's of course it's one of those things you do think about a lot but Mm -hmm. um I still feel like every day I still feel so inspired by you know living in the city and I want to create which is one of the things that when I want that really keeps us here really well I mean for you to have been there for six years it's like two two of those six years were during the pandemic too which is particularly oh challenging in New York. I mean, with three kids, I'm sure that had to be difficult. I mean, were they, were you guys all home basically yeah. during, during that? Pretty, and Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. I mean, I, I say it to friends in Australia, like um, when they went back to school in September, I said, kids are going back to school full time for the first time in 18 months. Wow. And to actually say that, so, I mean, some of that is summer, obviously, but you know, like to say that just really hits home. Um, it sounds like you're exaggerating, but that's 18 months of their lives, which is kind of, you know, when you're, my, my youngest is only 11. So he was, last time he went to school was nine. And, you know, now wow, he's 11. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of, um, yeah, it's, it's a lot to, to, to um, process. But to be honest, you know, like I loved having them home. <laughs> I'm selfishly. sure. Um, <laughs> It, I didn't, I could see that it was affecting them. I mean, that you know, the kids, they need to be around other humans. How, how old to, is the oldest? The oldest, my oldest is 15. So okay. she actually started high school. Um, so she finished middle school, didn't get to do any of the graduations or mm. any of that. She's a musician. So she didn't get to do the final concert. And then um, she started high school during the pandemic. So didn't really meet anyone. Um, she only went to school like maybe a handful of times um and they were each time for only a few hours and my middle so 
and yeah, the other two were at home. My middle son went like a couple times a week when there wasn't, you know, every time anyone tested positive, they had to start quarantining again. So mm-hmm. it was like, um, but you know, it was really nice for, in terms of family time. You know, we spent lots of time together. My husband is still working from home mainly. Um, and you know, we had lunch together every day. Yeah, did you it cook was, like, meals for oh everybody? Yeah. <laughs> Nonstop. <laughs> Wow, it's been like a like a diner. Yeah, I feel like you must be in one of your children's rooms right now because I'm looking behind you and I see a poster for Fight Club and a picture of (laughs) the cast of Friends. And so I'm like, I don't think that's yours. Favorite movie, Nirvana. Like she's she's obsessed with uh, Nirvana. Nirvana. But this is your oldest oldest daughter. This is my oldest, and then you know, this is a Friends poster, which is kind of off Friends anyway. But you know, yeah, Fight Club apparently one of her favorite movies like I'm like huh? okay and there's her piano <laughs> behind me but um yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry I didn't mean to call attention no, to it but I've just been fine. looking at it yeah I, know, I well, should have explained it to you <laughs> <laughs> no it, it was kind of was felt relevant because you were talking about your children uh, well Hetty this was like this flew by we're not quite done yet we're just approaching the end um and I always start every podcast with what did you have for lunch but I end it with what will you be having for dinner tonight Oh, okay. I think, you know, this thought occupies my mind all the, all day long. If I don't know what I'm cooking for dinner, I actually feel like really unsettled. Um, and it, yeah. Anyway, tonight, I think I'm going to be making um, one of the recipes in my new book, which I'm writing at the moment. It is, I, I went to the market yesterday at Union Square and I bought like a couple of bunches of really crazy looking carrots, you know, the ones mm-hmm. that look like they have egg, legs and arms. Uh-huh. So um, they, so I'm going to be making this kind of olive oil braised uh, date, um, olive oil braised carrots with dates and chickpeas. Delicious. Yeah. I actually have some carrots. I just did a CSA box this week because I hadn't done it for a while. Mm-hmm. And it came with like so much lettuce. I'm gonna have a salad for the next week. But um it came with the most beautiful carrots. And I was actually thinking, like, really good carrots. I think that is the ingredient. I think that's the piece of produce that I think is the biggest difference between going to the grocery store and going to the farmer's market because good carrots are sweet and juicy and delicious. Whereas I feel like bad carrots, I mean, I used to live in Brooklyn in Park Slope across from the key Uh foods. And if I bought carrots there and I was making a soup or something, I would actually just leave them out because they taste like cardboard. I mean, they would just have no flavor. So I feel like if you're somebody who doesn't go to the farmer's market and you're listening to this, get carrots. I feel like that's the thing to get. Yeah, carrots are good. I actually live in Park Slope too. So oh, um, funny. Actually- <laughs> I'll, I'll have to ask you afterwards. Don't give out, don't give away your address, but we'll, we'll find out afterwards if you live near where I used to live. Um, I can tell you where I used to live. You don't have to say whether it's near where you live. Well, you, but said, I used- you said key foods, so I think I've worked it out. Oh, really? Is there only one Key Foods in Park Slope? There's got to be more than one. I lived near this restaurant called Miriam, which was an Israeli restaurant, mm-hmm. and I lived above it. So like the apartment mm-hmm. above it. So um, now if you're listening and you want to do the lunch therapy tour of Brooklyn, you can go visit my old apartment. Miriam's really good. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. And there was a coffee shop called Gorilla Coffee right near there that I used to yeah. write at. Anyway, this is not about me. So you're making these carrots. <laughs> dates chickpeas now can i ask i know you're not gonna not allowed to reveal what this is but were the bagels for the same project or the bagels were for a different project 
Bagels okay. for, for something else altogether. Okay, um, got it. So this is for a new project. <laughs> so when you do a recipe, I'm curious, I always ask this of cookbook authors, um, what is your process like? So you're going to do this tonight. You're going to make the carrots and braise them in olive oil. And then do you keep, you know, just what's the word? Like just lots of notes in the notebook. Do you make them multiple times? Yeah, yeah. it's been different per book. I mean, this one, I've been using notes on my phone. So mm -hmm. I'll like. That's what I do. Because yeah. I used to actually um, with many of, I think with um, neighborhood and with family, actually wrote them all as concept as concepts before I tested any of them. So I basically wrote the entire book wow. um, and then went into the kitchen and tested and obviously lots of changes. But um, this time I didn't though, because it was kind of written um, differently in terms of I was using what I had in my kitchen. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, that's not the theme of the book, but it just kind of the way is the way it kind of came together um so I was really just taking notes on on notes um it's kind of a fallible process though because I've noticed that sometimes I don't write things down so they're in my head and then when I go to paste them into my whatever document I'm working on some steps are missing so that's mm. something I've got to get better at um but yeah I mean this tonight though this recipe has been tested before so I'm actually just redoing it and I'm just like making it because I have the carrots and I, I feel like making it. But, you know, the danger in testing your own recipes is that you never stop. You know, you always want to, I don't think I've ever tested a recipe where I've just gone, oh yeah, that was great. I, mm. I, I don't need to do anything. Like I'm always adding or taking something out or changing. And mm -hmm. that's the danger when you get to this stage, you just, of, you know, recipe testing for, even just a singular recipe, it gets really dangerous, but it sometimes just say it's done. And it also gets expensive, which is what I learned during this cookbook was yeah. like, wow, if I like do, I don't know, like, I mean, I know you don't cook with meat, but if I'm doing something with like, you know, steak or something, it's like, how many times can I buy ribeyes? And like, exactly. You know, right? like, um, and I'm curious. never this, really yeah. paid for by anybody. No, <laughs> God, I make no money doing this. Um, when you make carrots and chickpeas and dates, is that the whole dinner for five people or is there other stuff on the table too? Uh, well, I'll do like, I'll serve some, something carby with it, like probably couscous or, mm -hmm. you know, something like that, but it varies. But tonight that's, I think that's all I'm going to do. Um, how do you we handle also have like, vegetarianism yeah. with your kids i mean are they all vegetarian because you're a vegetarian or do they sometimes want meat they're accidental vegetarians <laughs> yeah i mean look they will eat meat when they go out I mean, like my boys will they have outside lunch so they go and they go into the community and buy lunch and they'll eat meat at lunchtime but i don't cook meat anymore and that's something that um that's what kind of family was about family that book was about kind of transitioning finding those meals where you can eat as a family and without, you know, we can eat as a family happily because, you know, kids, their palate is, is, they have a great palate. Like they'll eat. We have a lot of favorite, you know, things that we eat as a family and they're all interesting meals, but, you know, I like probably more vegetables than they like. Mm -hmm. So it's like kind of finding um, those meals that, that they eat. Like last night I made them, um, 
I made like a Chinese meal. So I made Mapo tofu, like a vegan Mapo tofu. Um, and then green beans, like snake beans. I got snake beans from the market. So I, made I saw that on your beans. Instagram. They look yes, beautiful. They that looks so good. Oh my yeah. God. Really? Like mm-hmm. you could just eat that with rice and you'll, mm-hmm. you know, die very happy. It's so delicious and particularly good when snake. I mean, I didn't expect us to find snake beans because you don't always find them. I've never had maybe them. They could, now, maybe they're not called snake beans in, in the US. I think, are they called like Chinese long beans? Or... Maybe. Okay, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. God, yeah, I've been using the wrong word again. But, no, um... no, I don't, no, I don't know. I mean, I, know, I don't know. I don't think they're called Chinese long. I don't know what they're called, but I know what you're talking about in terms of like visually. Yes, I've seen yes. them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what, what, what are the meals that is like, are the family's most loved meals that you make? Uh, so, well, they like pasta, but I don't make that much pasta because it's like, you can really go down the rabbit hole of eating pasta every single night. Oh, believe um, me, but, I did that all uh, pandemic <laughs> and gained 15 pounds. Yes. <laughs> I know. So I try and limit the, the pasta intake. Um, but yeah, what do they love? They love they love the mapo tofu that's a real favorite like my daughter just loves it last night I even like made it more of a favorite by adding potatoes to it um Mm. like really finely diced potato just to add more bulk you know my boy my oldest my middle son is 13 he's huge and he's like they (laughs) play sport and they're always so hungry so you're always like looking for ways of you know bulking this is what I do now I feel like this is all I do is like try to bulk up food Mm-hmm. to satisfy their hunger this constant hunger um so mapo tofu is a real f- favorite potatoes are a real big favorite with with my kids um and so i do this potato shredded potato stir fry is actually into asia's love it's one of their favorite things mm-hmm. i call it salt and vinegar potatoes so it's basically like sauteed potato like stir fried potatoes but they're not fully cooked they're still a little bit crisp and um it's quite a, it's a bit of an odd texture if it's the first time you're eating it but I put like black vinegar and um, soy sauce on it and it's very good yeah um, <laughs> and the other thing they love is like the Korean tofu stew the kimchi jjigae um, and that's something that we I make a lot at home and you know I make my own kind of doctored quick versions of kimchi and whatever I have lying around the house <laughs> that mm-hmm. goes into that stew. But we eat that out a lot. Um, we love Korean food. So um, it's one of our favorite like things to eat in a restaurant. Well, this, this was a perfect place to end, I think, because you once again have made me feel really hungry and I have to go eat my own lunch. So uh, <laughs> Hedy, thank you so much for being so open and talking so much about your family. And it was such a delight to talk to you. So thank you. And thank you. Uh, I hope I get to meet me. you. Yeah. Sometime if you ever come to LA, let me know and I'll cook you dinner. Oh, I will. I'm jealous. <laughs> I'm jealous you live in LA. <laughs> oh, well, it's okay. I mean, New York is pretty great too so i'm jealous also well thanks, <laughs> thanks again for the therapy session <laughs> yes and thank you for helping me and i'll uh, see you around okay. see you around bye, bye.